0: Please pray with me. my Father God, may the words I speak be from Your heart for Your people for this moment. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. I want to start off with a question. As you look at yourself this morning, as you think of your life, do you consider yourself a super Christian? A super saint? What do you think it might take for you to be one? What would you have to do? What would have to happen? I remember I uh, there was a new professor announced at my seminary it was a second PhD he had been a college professor PhD college professor when he met Christ and God told him to go to seminary and then God told him to get a second PhD so he had a PhD in Old Testament and when he was introduced to the student body because he was new that year, I was so impressed that I didn't need any more Hebrew classes. Lord knows I didn't want another Hebrew class. But I just wanted to take a course with him. I was just, I wanted to find out about him. And after the course was over my grade was set in stone and I couldn't be accused of being a sycophant, I went up to his office and talked to him for a moment and explained to him that I just wanted to take a class with him because of what I'd heard him say. He took off his glasses, he looked at me across the desk, and he said, I have purposed in my heart that I am going to do whatever it takes to be a spiritual giant. Are you shocked by that statement? At the time, I kind of was. Do you think God is pleased with such ambition? Or do you think maybe that he's looking down from heaven going, Oh no, no, no. I want a bunch of mediocre Christians. That's all I want. Just mediocrity. No, I think God gets excited when His disciples, when His followers take discipleship seriously. Now, I know, and you guys know too, that periodically the disciples would start to argue with each other about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus fully established His kingdom, and who was going to have the seats of honor. And Jesus rebuked them for that. But He didn't rebuke them for wanting to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I can't tell you how many years it took before that, that sunk into me that that's not the deal. What he was rebuking them for is misunderstanding what the greatest in the kingdom of heaven went, or meant. And he took them aside and he said, Okay, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You're going about it the wrong way. Here's how you do it. You have to have humility. You have to be the servant of all. Because the one who is the servant of all will be the greatest of all in the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't saying, don't strive to be the greatest. He was saying, strive to be the greatest by being the greatest servant, and you'll achieve it. And yeah, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for having abused the spiritual gifts that God had given them. But he didn't tell them to stop. He told them no. Instead, seek the best gifts. Seek the gifts that edify the church. Seek the gifts that build up the church. Seek. Seek those things. Seek to be more than you are. Seek to do more than you are. Seek to have more of God than you have. I'm certain that God desires to build every one of His people into an effective army of strong, capable, courageous, compassionate, faithful, powerful people who boldly live and boldly proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. That's what He wants. But then what about, what about all the rest of us? What about those of us whose wounds are so deep and so painful that we just can't seem to move forward in the faith? What about those of us who are too exhausted and too burned out to keep on trying again and again and again because we are at the point where it just seems futile? Is there any place, any hope for them? Any place, any hope for us when we find ourselves in those places? Does God ever just look down on us, frown, stamp us defective, and sweep us into the trash? Does He ever just shake His head and say, Well, I tried. And just move on to something else. I know that for some among us, it can feel like that at times. Well, let's look at our passage from Isaiah this morning. Because I think it has something to say to this. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. It may be that Isaiah had no idea that he was writing about the Messiah. Because we're told that the the prophets longed to understand the things that they were foretelling. But he was foretelling the Messiah. He was describing what the Messiah would like. He wrote the words he heard from God. Here is my servant, or behold, my servant. And so we know that the Messiah is a servant. Remember that Jesus told His disciples in Luke twenty two twenty seven, For who is greater, the one who is at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at table? But I, I am among you as one who serves. Behold, my servant. Then he describes, then rather Jesus is described in Isaiah as my chosen one, and I will put my spirit upon him. And what was the gospel reading today? spirit of God coming upon Christ in the form of a dove. And that spirit rested upon him in his baptism and stayed with him. And then the second verse in our passage from Isaiah tells us He will not shout or cry out or raise His voice in the streets. And so the Messiah will not impose Himself on others. People will have to choose to hear His words. People will have to choose to obey Him if they will choose to obey Him. It will be up to them. And then... The third verse, the part I especially wanted us to look at. Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised, a crushed, a broken reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not Snuff. He will not extinguish. He will not quench. Any of us, any of us can start to think that we're just too broken, just too bruised, just too beaten down, just too sinful perhaps to ever come to Christ or to ever be the disciple we know He's called us to be. We can start to think that we're too burned out or too burned over to ever matter, too incomplete, too inadequate for any of us to be of use to anyone, especially especially God. And many of us have had some experiences with people, perhaps especially the people that we respected and And they caused us to think this way because they looked at us and said defective or ineffective or useless or worthless. And it stuck. The fact is that when some people see a bruised reed, they do feel compelled to go over, twist it and yank it and yank it apart. And some people are just annoyed by a smoldering wick and put smoke into the room and snuff that sucker out. It's annoying. But this passage says our Lord is not like that. It says that He will not break the broken, bruised, crushed reed. And it says He will not snuff out the smoldering wick. It's not in His nature. It's not what His Father God had called Him to do. It's not who He is. It's not what a healer does. It's not It's not what Jesus does. Think about Peter walking on the water. Do you remember that that account from the scripture? It's the early morning watches and Jesus had sent them ahead of him. He'd stayed on shore, and about 3 a.m., they see this figure walking on the dark of the water and the, the storm and the waves crashing. And they get terrified, and Jesus calls out to them, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter said, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come. Jesus says, okay, come. And for a little bit, Peter does great. For a little bit, Peter walks in the water. For a little bit, he's there with Jesus, and then, and then remember, remember how important faith is. Remember, it's by grace we're saved through faith. And Peter's faith fails, and he starts sinking in the water. And I suppose Jesus could have looked at him and said, "You jerk." And pushed him under. Or pushed him away. But Peter, whose faith had failed, called out, Jesus, help! And Jesus, who might have been in His rights to push him under, reached down, lifted him up, and set him in the boat. A bruised and crushed reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not extinguish. After all, after all, it was Jesus who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll make you work a whole lot harder. No, no. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And the next verse from Isaiah is this one in in verse chapter 42, verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Now, a few English translations try to capture this, but most don't. He will not falter. That word translated falter is the same same word that in the previous verse was translated as smoldering. And He will not be discouraged. That word discouraged is the same Hebrew word that was translated bruised or crushed. He will not smolder for... He will not be crushed until He accomplishes what He's sent to accomplish. You see, where we have failed and sometimes continue to fail, he will and does succeed. Perhaps that's what meant, is, is meant in Second Timothy 2:13, where the Apostle Paul writes, "If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself." You see, a bruised reed he will not break. And the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break. And the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. So, what do you think Jesus wants to do with a bunch of bruised reeds and a bunch of smoldering wicks? Our passage from Isaiah doesn't exactly tell us. But it does speak of justice, of setting things right, of setting things as they need to be, of setting things as they ought to be. He will not falter or be discouraged until He establishes justice in the earth. Knowing what we know about Jesus, will He not heal them? Will He not strengthen and restore them? That is if they if we are willing to be healed willing to be strengthened willing to be restored after all it was jesus who said well it is of jesus it is said when jesus saw a large crowd in matthew 14:14 14, 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. It's his nature to heal. It's his nature to restore. It's his nature to renew to renew. For certain, our Lord desires that with his skilled hands, he can bind up our wounded, crushed, broken selves and make us like an oak branch. For certain, He is the one that wants to pour oil back into the lamp and let that smoldering wick once again have the fuel it needs to come into flame, to once again bring light into a dark world. We can be certain of this. God really does want to fashion all of us into super saints. He does. He wants us to be mighty. He wants us to be compassionate if we'll have it. That's His goal for us, if we will have it. But He also knows us and loves us in our brokenness and our neediness. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And a bruised reed He will not break. And a smoldering wick He will not snuff out. So people of God... Let us lift up our heads. Let us come before the throne of grace to seek mercy and healing, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews 4:15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Even us. Even now. Even when we're bruised and broken and smoldering. He loves us and He can heal. And He can restore. And He can strengthen. And He can fan back into flame.